Hello everyone. Today I bring you part two of my discussion with Dr. Jessica Wolfendale on torture, war crimes, and moral responsibility. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you do that first, as some elements of the upcoming conversation may otherwise not make a lot of sense. Thank you, and I hope you find value in this discussion. So maybe just to get onto the dispositional account, which is the second account of the book, and does vary to the situational account. So, so what is the dispositional account of war crimes, and how how would a dispositional account explain it? Well, again, we draw on this theory that was put forward by Walter Mitchell in the 1970s called cognitive affective personality system. And in his view, and he's, I mean, he's not looking at war crimes particularly, he's interested more generally in human behaviour. So in his view, human behaviour results from this kind of interaction between, again, an agent's values, self-conception, how they interpret a situation, as well as features of that situation. So you get this kind of constant feedback loop where one informs the others. Think about a dinner party is an example one of the researchers discusses. A dinner party might, you might objectively describe it as a, a social fun event. Mm-hmm. But the problem with taking that kind of objective universal description is that, well, think about the people who were there. So for me, it might be a, an extreme source of social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Or for someone else, it could be a stressful situation where they're trying to impress their boss. In meaning of the situation depends very much on what people are bringing to it. And what they bring to it comes from their history, their circumstances, their self-conception, all kinds of things. And then their interaction with that situation then reinforms and reinforces certain patterns of thought and habit triggers, that kind of thing. So that's why you get consistency in people's Mm behaviour, the consistency that we often see. And it's not that there is some kind of isolated, static character trait existing independently that comes out. It's rather that you have these kind of reinforced patterns of of sort of affect and response and value and self-conception that can be triggered by certain kinds of, like, for example, if I'm scared of authority figures, Mm -hmm. when I see an authority figure, it's going to kind of reinforce certain beliefs, patterns, behaviours, feelings in me and then that's going to affect my behaviour the next time I see an authority figure, even if the two authority figures might be very different from each other. Yeah. So there'll be an internal consistency in my behaviour, even if the two situations seem very different from an external point of view. For a military person, I mean, that is absolutely part of the, what it means to be in the military. I mean, before anybody who's been in the military has, uh, you know, joined in one stream and has at some point been berated uh, by a sergeant, right. undoubtedly, which uh, until such time that you uh, either outrank that sergeant or you are the same rank or something like that, uh, you always carry a uh, <laughs> a moment of, oh, damn, it's another sergeant. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that's then transferred to other ranks. And you yeah. know, it depends on, depends on it, and that's part of the institution and institutionalizing behavior, yeah. which is reinforced through, you know, the kind of reward or punishment uh, system. You know, if you comply and obey the rules of your particular social group, you'll be rewarded, you know, through status, through respect. And if you don't, well, you'll be punished and sanctioned by the group. I know this is one of the things that uh, Ana Zimbardo talks about that, that does really resonate well with me is the kind of making exit costs too high, yeah. you know, out of a social group. And of course, we all love our sense of belonging. In fact, we need it. Yeah. And from an evolutionary perspective, we need it. Uh, so that's a key piece. Yeah. You think about the military socialization and providing frameworks of meaning that make sense of someone's actions. Mm. There's a level at which that occurs at quite a you know, macro, quite a, a, a high level. And then, you, but you also have like small unit culture. So I think about the Brereton report, right? And the mm-hmm. report on American, uh, Australian social forces culture. And there you have this sort of small unit creating its own culture with norms of meaning and interpretation of events. And so even, you know, the idea of killing as a kind of initiation, right? Gives it a certain kind of meaning. Like someone who's in that group might then see that as why, 
this is part of what it is to be, you know, the awesome member of this group is that I have to do this. And this action has a certain meaning in this context because of what I'm interpreting it. Mm. But just to backtrack a little bit to talk about cats more generally, the cats can tell us how you can kind of get this unified behavior across different situations. And it can also help explain seemingly inconsistent behavior by reference to a, a single goal. So you can think about a, a waiter in a restaurant who's very kind of blokey with one table. It's like, yeah, you know, and it's very kind of prim and proper with another table. And if you're just observing them, you might think, well, who is this person, right? They're different people with different customers. What's going on? They're, they're, there's no unity there. But actually, they, their goal might be, I want to get as much tips as I can. Yeah. And so I know that if I'm prim and proper with this kind of customer, they'll give me more tips. And so there's a unified goal that gives rise to quite different kinds of behaviours. And again, but we're only, we only going to know that if we actually ask what they're doing, how it relates to what they're trying to achieve. So when we think about war crimes then, I think what that helps us see is, and this is why the Kretschmer and Landau cases are so nice, is that, yeah, there, is, there are these shared situational factors that apply to both of them. They're both in these units. They're both companies training. There's a framework, a broad social, political, moral framework that they've been exposed to. So, you know, this narrative of, say, the war is a, a sort of, the Jews as an existential threat was a very strong narrative that the Nazis used. Mm. Kretschmer, for that, that really resonates with him, doesn't so much with Landau. That for him, it doesn't play much of a role in his making sense of his participation in the killing. For him, it's it's much more straightforwardly, this is my job. I'm a soldier, I obey orders, I do it to the best of my ability. Not my job to worry about big picture. Mm. Whereas Kretschmer is like, we, you know, I'm saving our people from destruction. And He's emotionally invested, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, it's just a different, but again, externally, we're not going to understand the differences in this. We just look at, A, their behaviour, because they're both engaged in killing, but it's not going to get us a picture as to how they are understanding what they're doing, what's leading them to accept it in this way. So I, I think CAP's framework helps us see that by seeing this interaction between their own self-conceptions, their values, their goals, and how that's shaping how they interact with and make sense of the situation in which they're in. And it doesn't affect shape their behaviour. So we might think actually that Kretschmer might end up killing more mm. because precisely because he thinks he has to desensitise himself to killing. Mm. Whereas because Landau's more like, well, I don't think this is particularly soldierly, but it's what I've been ordered to do. He hasn't got that investment in wanting to kill. He's not going to not do it because he's been told to do it. He'll do it well, but he's not going to. If he could stop, he probably he won't would. go the so extra it, mile. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but I think it gives yeah. a much better way of thinking about this smile problem. How do we explain the mm-hmm. differences in the way perpetrators engage in the violence they're committing? And so that's a kind of at the micro level. So at the, at the macro level, you have these available frameworks of meaning, which make sense both of what it is you're engaged in. So what does this war mean? Why are we fighting it? So there's those kinds of very broad narratives, and then you have within that maybe even broader in the society as well, outside the military, ways of thinking about moral values that are shaped by particular social, legal, political, even empirical views. So one example I was thinking of is, is thinking about the word equality. Mm-hmm. And people often point out correctly that it's so strange that the you know, framers of the Constitution, and I'm no American historian, so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, you know, refer to, you know, equality as being the, many of them were keeping slaves, right? Mm. How do you reconcile belief yeah. in equality for men? Of course, women aren't included in that to begin with, but, you know, all men, and yeah. yet you are saying, yes, but, well, that's reconciled through a framework which said, well, you know, people of African descent weren't really men or they, they didn't have the moral standing. They lacked certain, they were kind of children or they were barbarians. 
And so there's a kind of set of beliefs which mm. justify the view that equality, you're still committed to the value of equality, but equality only applies to people who are you know, yeah. full more equals. Construed, right? and, you know, but through the lens no, of your social group. Yeah. That's right. So there's no inconsistency then in saying, I believe in equality and I keep slaves. Mm. Right? Because mm. slaves are like, you know, in a sense, like animals. We don't think of animals as being moral equals. And so, again, you can't assume that there's some universally understood accepted meaning of equality. Mm. And I think the same would go for concepts like respect for persons and honour and duty. And so that, at that framework, you have this sort of broader ways in which these terms are understood in a particular cultural context, historical context. Yeah. Again, that speaks to me as somebody who's, you know, very much interested in culture and intercultural communication and, and how we fail to see the world through someone else's lens. Uh, while right, trying to right. interpret their behaviour, yeah. you're missing a, a critical piece, and that is, you know, how does the actor interpret the world around them, and right. what are the causes of those behaviours? I mean, you know, it, or, right. every human cultural behaviour has its cause somewhere in its past, and we may judge mm. it as right or wrong, but it didn't just pop out of nowhere. It's been done for mm. a reason. And I, I think, too, there is a possibility and there is always active disagreement within our own culture mm. about the values and of course if you think about the civil rights movement i mean that is an an, an movement for the vote for women and equality is saying hey we have this value equality look it actually should apply to these groups so they're always it's always contested terms we shouldn't think of moral frameworks as being any sort of fixed fixed yeah and unchangeable and they can go forwards and backwards yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. well as as you talked about the torture the the torture for you know post 9 11 yeah uh changing of the torture act in the u.s yeah and what's fascinating about that is that the, the whole dynamic around the the way in which torture was justified the response to the use of torture, the lack of accountability, and then they're almost forgetting of it. That's repeated a number of times in America's history. I mean, the, the mm. war in the Philippines is a really nice example of that. It's almost identical. Waterboarding, torture, atrocities in the Philippines. There was even a Senate inquiry in 1904, and there was public outrage for a little bit, and then nobody was found accountable, right, because they mm. believed they were doing the right thing. That was one of the kind of reasons. And then it was forgotten in within two years, and Roosevelt was re-elected. <laughs> so it's like... It's just this pattern of, sort of use and justification and erasure of torture. That's a history which I think is also important to note. Yeah. And yeah. again, it's, it's dangerous, especially when how morality shifts when the threat of your, your own uh, group is perceived as imminent. We'll drop nukes. We'll, uh, we'll flatten cities. Right. Dresden, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. How do you justify that? But am I right in understanding then that the CAPS theory is really kind of what delves into this idea of personality and character? And that's what yeah. it tries to, I guess, yeah. draw attention to. This is why we have differences. You know, why two people in the same situation will act differently. Yeah, yeah. And also a way of making sense of, of kind of giving a unified picture of someone's behaviour over over time. Yeah. And even if it, from the outside it might look like they behave differently, it's like once you ask them or investigate a little bit about what this behaviour means to them, then you start to see a more unified picture. So we don't, it avoids a kind of, the simplistic situationist view of the individual as this kind of empty vessel that's buffeted by situational forces and doing different things, right? Mm. Um, and that, that's a very specific view. There are very much more sophisticated versions of situationism than that. Mm. But I think in particular in war crimes, it, it does, it forces us to say, because again, this is why I push back against the portrayal of war crimes as always being failures of virtue or someone going against their values. Actually, sometimes they're people acting on their values and these are values that are, that are shared by their group. If we constantly talk about war crimes as failures of, or an inability to live up to values, then we're missing how the values themselves can lead to normalise and give legitimacy to war crimes and make yeah. them consistent with one's conception of oneself as a good person. That's a very powerful motivation is to see oneself mm. as good. 
So we're very strongly motivated to try and think of what we're doing as justified. Absolutely. When I spoke with Dean Peter Baker about this very problem, he he uses a really great analogy, and that's of the submarine. Uh, you know, he looks at a small group or a small unit as being part of a submarine. Right. And when you're in the submarine, there's no windows. You don't necessarily see where you're heading. There are a couple of people that are setting the direction uh, of the particular submarine. But, you know, you're inside. You're just doing your part of that machine, mm-hmm. of that particular unit, whatever it is. Uh, you don't necessarily know how far, of course, you might have gone. And again, I, I bring in Kurt Lewin because that formula, behavior, uh, is a function of personality uh, in the environment which seems to me like what we're kind of talking about here. How closely does this align with kind of how you view the world? I mean, I'm not familiar with Kurt Lewin's work. So I'm always a, a little I'm always a little resistant to something that can be put as a formula. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. I mean, in a, sense, in a broad sense, yeah, that's very similar. They could be interpreted in a way that's similar to CAPS. I guess my concern is that it's in ways too broad. Like, well, how mm. is, I don't know how it's defining personality or yes. environment. Yes, absolutely. Because if, if a situation might say, well, I mean, personality, they might define personality differently. And then if environment is interpreted as a kind of objective description of a situation, that runs into the problem I said earlier, which is that it's hard to describe a situation without actually talking about how individuals in that situation are construing it, what the mm, meaning of mm-hmm, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, so one example is straightforward. Like think about a case where a student is asked to a dob in another student, mm. right? Now, we might think maybe that's a test of honesty. Or maybe it's a test of loyalty. Like mm. it, we could describe the dynamic in that situation or the character trait that's relevant in a number of different ways. Mm. And really it's going to depend on how the person who's in that situation thinks of it. Mm. So maybe I lie to protect my friend, not because I don't value honesty, but because I value loyalty more. Mm. But someone who thinks of that as a test of honesty might say, therefore I'm not an honest person, right? I'm, yeah. I lack the character of honesty because here in this case, I lied to cover up my friend. So where does that come from then? I don't want to get stuck on kind of free will, but I think I mentioned to you that I I subscribe to the view of uh, free will skepticism, both through my own meditation practice, but also through reading and research. Where does my personality and my character Mm. come from that is interplaying at this particular point in time with the environment that's going to, you know, dictate how I behave? (laughs) I guess I kind of subscribe to a view that's actually fairly common in philosophy of moral responsibility these days, which is kind of free will irrelativism, which is okay. not going to be a word. Okay, yeah. And I think ultimately, yeah, I mean, there are multiple possible explanations for how I've come to be the person that I am, to have the views that I have, the beliefs that I have, you know, what matters to me. Some of it might be genetic. Some of it's going to be circumstantial. A lot of it's going to be circumstantial. Ultimately, most of it's probably going to be out of my control in certain ways. Uh, how? Um, so how is it? Is, that, well, I guess that's the important piece. How is it under my control? I don't think it is important for moral responsibility, particularly. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, you know, for a lot of people, people do think control matters. There's different kinds of control. So, you mm. know, I didn't have any control over the way I was raised by my parents. I didn't have any control of where I was born and the culture I was born into. Maybe I had some natural genetic capacities I was able to do some things and not others you know like even being tall is actually something which gives you certain benefits in life mm, apparently mm, yeah, 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 might yeah. Assume that I'm more and I know more I don't know <laughs> yeah no but there is a there is credible research that yeah it shows that yeah, right, so yeah. I'm lucky in the sense that I'm tall and it has an effect on on how I see myself and how people see me all that kind of thing so there's a lot of ways in which you know if you start to trace and you try and trace back how did I come to say believe that torture was wrong well, it's going to trace back to something which is ultimately out of my control, probably. 
mm. a book that I read that I had we all had access to. That I lived in a society that meant I could I was literate, you know, all this kind of thing. Mm. So you know, once you start down a kind of rabbit hole of looking at control, it's almost inevitable that you'll end up in a position of we can call it control skepticism. But ultimately, mm-hmm. who you are is out of your control in some sense, in some deep sense. The reason why I don't think that really matters, um, mm-hmm. I, I was shocking. A student was like shocked when he was asking a question about free will determinism. I'm like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Responsibility. I, I agree about, about determinism or, or randomness uh, or whatever. I, I don't uh, care. Yeah. What I care about is the everything before to now. Yes. I don't care what, you know, if it's determinism or determinism and randomness yeah. going forward, that's it. That's irrelevant. Yeah. I agree. Right. I mean, both of them are going to be ways in which you like control, right? Exactly. If it's random, exactly. you're there no control. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So why does it all matter? Well, I mean, Matt and I, we both kind of subscribe to a, what people call a Strasonian view. So the idea mm-hmm. is that what matters for responsibility is the attitudes that your behavior displays to the people who are affected by your behavior. Right. So mm-hmm. generally, the idea is that, you know, when we, and Strawson wrote this paper called Freedom and Resentment in the, in the late 60s, it's kind of unbelievably influential. It's pretty underdeveloped and it was a lecture. So it wasn't even like a full paper. But, but the basic idea is that, so suppose that you you shoved me mm. and, you know, I'm going to initially have a, 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 not just a physical reaction, but an emotional response. I'll mm. feel like hurt or resentful. Mm. And in a sense, my feeling of hurt and resentment is not an expression of some kind of conscious belief, but some sense that I've been treated with ill will. You know, you've treated me in a way that I, I shouldn't have been treated. And so that's the emotional kind of, the kind of cognitive content mm. of something like resentment is that, hey, you shouldn't have done that, mm. right? And it's, it's instantaneous and, again, uncontrollable, right? right? It's right. not conscious, yeah. So if it turns out you you shoved into me because you tripped, mm. Right. Even though that doesn't change the physical injury, if there is any, mm, mm. but it'll make a radical difference to how I feel towards you. Right. So what well, the idea there is that my sense of my feeling of resentment is based on the idea that you've shown ill will towards me. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's all there is in Strawson's view to being and holding each other morally responsible is viewing each other as being fit subjects of mm. these what he calls reactive attitudes. So if I think that it's, you know, so this is why we we don't feel resentment. My cat, like, sometimes likes to bite my cheek gently and sometimes it hurts and I get annoyed, but I don't feel resentful towards her. Mm. Why? Because I, I, in some sense I recognise that she's not showing me ill will. She's just, she's not the right kind of creature yeah. to have these emotional reactions to, right? I mean, I might mm. still be annoyed and I might push her away. And so, yeah, again, so again, if I discover that you hit me or you bumped into me accidentally, I also don't feel resentment because I'm like, oh, okay, you, in a sense, you weren't responsible, right? Yeah, I totally hear that. But again, if I'm, if we agreed that yeah. I have no control over, you know, what's yeah. happened and what I've been exposed to, uh, what's shaped my behavior over, you know, decades of life, whether cultural or otherwise, if at that point in time, something's triggered me, in other words, the situation is such that, I don't know, something, you frightened me. Because you, in my mind, there and then represent the oppressive state that's, uh, you know, been holding me down, et cetera. And that's interplaying everything I bring to the table, right, to right, that right. particular circumstance, being my personal experiences, sense of self, sense of my worth, all my fears and everything else. And that's why I've pushed you. Right. Where is my moral responsibility in that? I think of being responsible as being a sort of fit subject for these reactive attitudes, resentment, mm-hmm. and 
in cases of, I mean, also positive ones like gratitude, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like that's yeah. also like I, I only feel gratitude towards someone who I feel has consciously displayed goodwill towards me. Yeah. Right? So in order for me to think that gratitude is appropriate, I'm attributing a kind of control that you are intentionally doing something that shows goodwill mm. toward mm-hmm. me. But I'm not attributing some kind of deep metaphysical control. I'm not requiring that all the beliefs that an upbringing that led you to do this act be all under your control. I'm just requiring that your act right now be something which shows goodwill toward me. That's compatible with being the case that you had zero control about becoming a nice person. Like, that's totally compatible with that. I mean, it's still the case that doing in a sense, you're doing what you want to do and what you do is reflecting your attitude towards me. Yeah. But my attitude is not determined by my environment, by my upbringing. By, yeah. Is it? Well, why isn't it? it's still yours. I mean, I don't see that it's not yours in the relevant sense. In the sense that, yes, it's mine as in belongs to me by name and nature. But if I had no control over how it's become mine. Yeah, I don't think that matters. <laughs> no, okay. No, no. That's, but I find that that's what I find interesting because, I mean, and I guess in my view, I just can't see how we have a choice. If, I, if I'm not even producing the thoughts that I'm producing. In other words, they're just popping up into my mind. I didn't actually reference choice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I said that you're doing, in a sense, what you want to do. And that that could be the case that you're doing what you want to do, even if you've had no choice on some deep metaphysical sense about Mm -hmm. doing that, which might sound a bit strange. We have very fine-grained reactions to the attributed attitude behind people's behaviour. So again, if I think you're pushing me deliberately, I feel resentful. If you then say, oh, I'm really sorry, it was an accident, then I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Because then I think, oh, well, you're not responsible. You didn't have the right kind of control, right? You tripped, right? So in that sense, your action, even though it causes harm to me, doesn't reflect indifference or ill will, right? Okay, so, so, okay, so yeah. how do you define control in that instance then? I mean, how, what, what is then control? Well, you literally physically couldn't control your body. That's the, that, that right. kind of, okay, okay. You, you, you weren't doing what you wanted to do in a very simplistic sense. That's one way in which, mm. that's because mm-hmm. an excuse condition, right? I tripped and I pushed and I push you down the stairs accidentally, right? Mm. But the, the reason why there we withhold something like resentment, you don't think I'm blameworthy, is, is not because you think I'm metaphysically free in some deep sense, but rather just that at that time my action, my harming you didn't actually display ill will or any mm-hmm. desire to harm you. I mean, there are other cases. So if, for example, like ignorance is a case, like so I, I serve you a cup of tea and I don't realise that you're like horrendously allergic to the tea and you collapse and die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, then you don't have any responses to me, but suppose you don't collapse and die, but you get free. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you poisoned me. And, and if it ends up, like, I, I truly didn't know that this tea was poisonous to you, then mm. my action doesn't display ill will towards you. And so resentment is not appropriate, even though I cause you great harm. Yeah. So in some ways, there's a nice simplicity to this account, which actually accords very much with the way in which we interact with each other on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, the way Strawson approaches is to say, mm. let's just put aside these these debates about free will. He was running in the 60s, so it was all about determinism and free will. Let's put aside those debates and just look at how we actually interact with each other. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. how do we engage interpersonally? So that's the kind of evidence we're looking at, is just that. What do we actually do? How do we hold each other accountable in our day-to-day lives? You know, Mm -hmm. pre-theoretically, before reading philosophy, before, you know, before, well, we do it in a sense, through these patterns, interpersonal patterns and of, of emotional and effective reactions to each other's behaviour mm. and the implied goodwill or ill will that those actions express. Yeah. Of course it gets complicated because there yeah. are cases where you disagree, like, and, you know, you, you do something to me and I say, hey, that was wrong, and you're like, no, I thought it was justified. And that's when you get these kind of back-and-forth reactive exchange, so these mm-hmm. conversations we have with each other where we try and kind of make sense or agree on 
you know, it's like we, oh, it's a very common experience people have. Yeah, we're negotiating there and then. As, as like, well, yeah. I, you know, I don't. Why? Why do you think this hurts you? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. I did it. Like, oh, mm-hmm. and now I understand. And so there's this, you know, so all kinds of emotions like forgiveness and reconciliation yeah. and a part of that picture as well. But but his point was that we do this all the time. It's just built into human nature, and it doesn't matter what our theoretical commitments are in terms of metaphysical determinism. We probably can't give them up, right? Mm. We are so attuned to these perceptions of goodwill and ill will. So what that means then is that if you think about something like war crimes, yes, there are going to be cases where a perpetrator is not responsible on our account. If it's the case that their action does not display the kind of ill will that would justify resentment on the part of the victim. And there could be cases like that. So that might be the case with some of the heat of battle cases depending on the circumstances. Mm. If someone was like out of their minds with sleep exhaustion, then we're probably going to say, yeah, resentment maybe isn't appropriate or not to the same degree. Mm. Because someone who's out of their mind with sleep exhaustion, their actions are not conveying their attitudes in the way that a a normal person, you know, would normally be the case. I totally agree. I mean, it's a fine line because, you know, where does my ill will start? You know, the ill will that I hold against if I'm a German uh, exterminator towards right, Jews, right. where does the ill will start? And the reason I'm, I'm thinking about this is because if we're thinking that we need to use a very current term, we need off-ramps before we get to you know, Auschwitz, mm-hmm. how do we install off-ramps in order to create bumpers for people to bump off and don't go down that path? Because I think ultimately that's what okay. ill will that I might hold towards somebody starts somewhere. No one's born a warm criminal, right? They kind of become no, it. True. It feels to me like if we just pause there and say, okay, I'm going to judge you on whether you had ill will or not, and that's going to determine whether you're morally liable or morally responsible for the act you've done, sure, great, let's ask that question. But then the next question is, okay, what has contributed to your uh, uh, ill will? I think there's there's two questions. One is, in a sense, the question about individual responsibility, which is what we've been talking about. And one way to get at that and the way that we kind of focus on is, 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 again, we really want to take the victim's perspective. Mm. Because one of the things I think gets dropped out of the picture, and we've actually seen this in relation to the the failure to hold the perpetrators in relate of murders that occurred in Afghanistan by the SSAS forces truly accountable, along with a sort of failure to hold the kind of institution accountable yeah. in an important way. Is that, well, what are we saying to the victims when we say that the perpetrators are not accountable? We're essentially saying that you, the victim, shouldn't feel resentful or resentment is not appropriate. And so in a sense, this kind of prioritisation of the perpetrator's point of view is something I get very troubled by in a lot of the way we talk about war crimes, often war crimes committed by people sort of on our side. We're much yeah. obviously much likely to prioritise their perspective. So one way I think if you're thinking about an off-ramp, so there's that, that's one question is about, well, you know, it's understanding responsibility at this interpersonal level. And your question is more about, well, how do we try not to get to that level, right? How, yeah, do, we prevent... how do we prevent ill will? <laughs> right, well, I mean, but ill will too is also, I'm using that term fairly broadly. And I think I've been thinking recently a lot about the way in which the America's drone warfare and the, you know, extraordinary number of civilian casualties and, you know, indifference or lack of concern is a kind of ill will, right? There's obviously we often think of ill will as being active, like I hate you or I'm hostile towards you, but it can be just that you just don't care about people or you don't think of them. That is an ill will. It's basically not giving the kind of their moral regard they deserve. I couldn't agree more, yeah. So yeah. I think it's important to think about that. Well, how do you stop that? So when I think about stopping ill will, it's not just active hatred like you get with something like a dehumanisation program. And we're seeing that now with the 
really disturbing narrative about um, that's coming out from some of the more extreme Republican elements in the states is an anti-anti extremely dehumanizing and hostile. And I think uh, there's no magic mm. bullet, but one thing I think that would assist is again really prioritizing a veteran's perspective in the way we talk about, educate, memorialize war crimes. So I always I was thinking one time, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a memorial to the victims of Australian war crimes? Like mm. Wouldn't that be extraordinary to have that? And again, not so much as that therefore Australians are evil. No, These are people that we harm severely and we we need to honour and respect and pay attention to that harm, prioritise that harm. And so, again, I think if we start to say that no one's responsible, perpetrators are responsible, what are we saying to the victims? The victims of torture and rape and genocide saying, hey, you know, you can't blame, you can't feel, you shouldn't feel resentful. Mm. Or if you do feel resentful, you're mistaken because, Mm. you know, the perpetrator couldn't help it or they Mm. believe that what they're doing is the right thing or they were, you know, whatever the excuse that that we Mm. give. I 100% agree. I mean, I'm I'm an ethnic Bosnian. My particular ethnic group has been, you know, at the receiving end of genocide. Uh, So, you know, I I would never seek to, you know, vindicate or remove the victim out of this. But I also then look at, okay, how do we reconcile? So, and, and to take Bosnia as an example, right, compared yeah. to, say, sort of reconciliation in, in South Africa uh, post-apartheid, mm. you know, it, you know yeah. it was more about the understanding that, you know, everybody acted in the best interest of their particular social group at the time. It's a very hard thing to say. I mean, it's not about, you know, forgetting, but it's about forgiving mm-hmm. there and then for what's happened. If you understand that people did what they did because as we've even discussed time and time again some of these people think they're doing the right thing you know if we remove the banality of the situation yeah. and take it at face value they would consider themselves to be a good person yeah. and i think unless we unless we understand that it's a slippery slope in the sense that because ultimately we we're then again not understanding or appreciating situations sufficiently right. interplaying with the personality absolutely interplay with the personality 100% right so i'm not about the situationist account of nature dictates behavior Nature plus the person will dictate behavior. On average, mm. you know, statistically speaking, when we throw all of that into the mix, X amount of people will commit war crimes. Mm. And until we understand that or embrace that as a fact, it's very difficult to institute training regimes right. to force us to, to understand that, right? Without building, like you said, empathy. I agree that we need to have an element of empathy, but building too much from the victim's perspective of empathy, again, that's also going to be might have a counter effect of, well, I'm going to war. Yeah, I just think it's, I mean, it sounds unrealistic, I think. Exactly, yeah. It's like, actually, to, to demand that. I mean, I was thinking about this, how would you do this in training? So so one one side of it is, is true acknowledging the fact that, A, believing you're doing the right thing doesn't mean that you are therefore excused. I think that's really important. It's like, yes, you believe you're doing the right thing. That doesn't mean that your victim therefore shouldn't resent you. Right. Like yeah. that kind of ignorance, the kind of moral ignorance is not, in our view, excusing. And we agree on that 100%. So, yeah. yeah, I think so. So in terms of getting soldiers to understand that they can, they can become that person. Right. Because I do think there's understandably a lot of resistance to that because I, I think nobody thinks going into the military, oh, yeah, obviously I'll end up killing civilians. Yeah, yeah. The men in the SAS unit who, who murdered civilians in Afghanistan, when they were enlisted, I don't for a second think that they ever thought they would do that i just have to say allegedly done that (laughs) (laughs) but it's so confronting that yeah this i could end up doing these things and thinking it's right to do and thinking it's okay and one way to maybe acknowledge that is 
is using case studies of that. Okay, here are some good people who did terrible things. And these could be you. These are you. These could be you. And using case studies from within one's own forces, I think, is also important. Mm. Um, and case studies where war crimes were viewed as being justified. So not, again, pushing away. The... Yeah, yeah, not a hit of, hit of battle. Hit of battle, yeah. battle. Uh, but also maybe bringing in more victims. I mean, I don't know if that was just something that's possible, but say if you're talking about torture or training soldiers about the Geneva Conventions, bring in victims of American torture to talk about their experience. Yeah. I mean, that would be confronting. Yeah, absolutely. It would be real. It, it would, well, in my mind, right, as a free will sceptic, right, as somebody who, who believes that I am the product of everything that has gone before me, myself right, included, right. that would be a bumper yeah. in my mind. That would be an emotional, and we know that emotion yeah. sticks longer in our memory. That would yeah, be an emotional right. interaction with my environment that would absolutely yeah. stay with me and hopefully yeah. pop into my mind at the right time when I'm right. under extreme right. pressures, timelines, you know, flawed emission profiles, poor incentives, everything else that right. you know, right. we've seen and happen. In relation to like the drone campaign, it's like, of course, the media outlets are trying to do this, but it does. It's not. It's not sticking. And so I, I feel like in drone pilot training, get mm. people to talk about what it's like to live under drone surveillance, mm. like to the people who are doing it, and the um, and the terror that inflicts, whether or not you're the direct target, and it, that I think would be really again confronting and I think important. I, and sometimes I think you can't. Without engaging with the victims, and again, victims of your own acts of violence, yeah, yeah. that resistance to actually engaging with it is going to continue to be a barrier to true reform, mm. I believe. Yeah. And, of course, reconciliation. I mean, That's right. So, I mean, what's so interesting is reading some of the accounts of torture and some of the accounts of reconciliation and the way in there are cases of torturers and their victims, you know, many years later, becoming friends. <laughs> and yeah, because or, a kind of yeah. black and white image is a black and white understanding of these crimes is anathema to understanding them and how people can come to commit them and anathema to the understanding of human beings as complex and mm. not and irreducible to a single action right mm. and and so you know i i also do have a sort of meditation practice as well and i think it's, it's a sense of letting go of control but also a letting go of a kind of desire to categorize things you mm. know and mm-hmm. either, either one way or the other yeah, and yeah. that's why, again, the sort of broader question I'm interested in too is like how do people come to understand themselves in that way? How do you reconcile having committed an act of violence? At- but, yeah, that absolutely speaks to the, also to the idea of the self. Yeah. What is the self, which is very much part of what, what, I, what I'm kind of getting at. But also when you were talking, uh, a trigger in my mind, the power of reconciliation, when we think about, you know, World War One, Gallipoli, Post-Gallipoli, yeah. allegedly, I mean, at least it's, it's attributed to him, Ataturk's words that are even now inscribed on Gallipoli Cove, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, but along the lines of, you know, you mothers uh, of Johnny's and Mehmed's, you know, don't cry because they are now, you know, our sons too. How powerful mm-hmm. that sentence was in understanding the realities of that war. Yes, we've undoubtedly all carried out bad acts uh, on the shores mm-hmm. of Gallipoli, but let's understand that we did it on behalf of our people to the best of our mm-hmm. knowledge at the time, but let's forget that now and let's realise that we are, you know, all of us are, you know, sons of mothers and kind of in a way reconcile and how powerful and how much that one sentence resonates in our own mm-hmm. history of our yeah. own military forces and how much is done to negate the energy that undoubtedly existed at the time towards yeah. that enemy. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a really powerful example of the power of narrative in itself. 
yeah. in, in, in yeah. how we contextualize the world around us. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting work, which I've only barely scratched the surface of, about sort of fictional and ways of depicting and talking about war crimes in a more in a fictional context and how mm. that can shape our thinking about it. We, I'm actually just started working on a paper working on depictions of war crimes. We're, we're very interested in the ways in which the media and political speeches talk about responsibility for war crimes. So we're kind of like doing a kind of analysis and then drawing out the different kind of narratives of war crimes that are most commonly depicted and how they shape actual practices of accountability for war crimes. Mm, so mm. that's something ongoing. So I'm very interested in that, not officially, but also like yeah, media, TV, newspaper reports, political speeches. Um, and so we're kind of pulling apart the different kind of narratives that tend to be most common. Yeah. Um, and then looking at it, yeah, it actually does have an impact on actual practices of accountability. Amazing work, and I, and I certainly look forward to uh, reading it when it comes out. Also on that note, I know that we've pushed past the uh, our agreed time. It's been an absolutely amazing conversation. I knew it would be, as I said to you at the start, your name came recommended through uh, a number of uh, prominent people in the field. And given my particular interest in this topic, they assured me that I uh, would enjoy talking to you. Uh, <laughs> I certainly have. Uh, so do you have any final comments that, that um, you want to make? No, I, I don't know. I just, I mean, I found, I found it's, this is a wonderful conversation. I found it really interesting. And it's sort of, I mean, it, it went in directions I wasn't expecting, but I've really enjoyed. And it's made me think more about, yeah, sort of, yeah, reconciliation and like ways of sort of integrating the victim's perspective in the way we think about war crimes and training for war crimes. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for having me. That was part two of the amazing conversation with Dr. Jessica Wolfendale. If you've missed part one, I recommend you go back and listen to it, as it will give you additional context to our discussion. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.